Hello, my finest friends. Welcome to episode three, chapter three, if you will, of the Rahalastaba Book Club. I'm enjoying these. I hope you are too. We're going to carry on doing them, so you better be. This was there. Ed Patrick was my guest. We talked about his fabulous book, Catch Your Breath, which I do recommend. Uh, we are going to start letting you know what next week's book is so that you can read them in advance and usually email in some questions if you want. We can't do that for next week's book because we recorded the interview in 2020 and I do not have a time machine. But that will be Al Murray talking about the his book. is very good. It's called The Last Hundred Years, Give or Take and All That. Uh, an hilarious gallop through 20th century history. And it really is. So buy that book and read that by next week. Any other time, you could then email me a question and I might ask the author a question. That's the kind of guy I am. Uh, but let me know what you think about the books. We can make this a little bit of fun, you know. Let's have some fun while we're listening to podcasts. Why not? So I hope you're enjoying these. Do support us uh, by going to gofasterstripe.com slash badges and become a monthly badger. And uh, you will help us make more content for you. And check out richardhone.com slash gigs to find out where I am performing and when. And then come and see us. Or just enjoy these podcasts and tell your friends. All right, let's sit back, relax and enjoy Rahalastapa Book Club. The Richard Not Judy Book Club, I want to call it. Uh, with Ed Patrick. Welcome to uh, the Rahalastapa, Rahalastapa Book Club number three. Uh, we are doing a, a weekly, well, not always weekly, we'll see, uh, extra podcast where we talk to various authors and just about their books, just as a lovely, and because we should read more books. I should read more books. This is making me read more books or listen to more books, uh, and so should you. And so please buy this book. It's very good. It's called Catch Your Breath. It's by Ed Patrick, who joins me from an undisclosed location. Where are you, Ed? I'm un- undisclosed in my house in uh, Oxford. I'm, uh, s- I'm sat in a location, the safest location away from animals. Because <laughs> there's several animals that could uh, jeopardise this, uh, this, this podcast. So I decided okay. to isolate myself as much as possible. Yes, you have you have several pets, which I have learned from your your book, I, which I actually uh, I, I did in two stints. I um, I had COVID and uh, and was stuck in my room, and the book was there, and I hadn't read it for you. And you'd sent it to me very kindly, so I read about the first half of it, and then I got the audio book uh, last week or the week before, and listened to that first half again and the second half. So I've completed the entire thing. It's and there's an extra chapter on the audio book. For audio book audio files he discussed me but uh you can have another you can have another book tell me let's hear it from you how would you sum up your book what is the book about so in a short version it's a funny and honest memoir about becoming an anaesthetist which a lot of people have heard the word anaesthetist but don't really know what it is it's kind of this magical world and it's partly because if you ever meet an anaesthetist you're unconscious pretty soon after you've met them so it's understandable that not a lot of people understand what's going on so it was it was uh, intriguing to to tell people and talk about the sort of dark arts behind it but then also over the last couple of years um it brought into focus just where anaesthetists are in the hospital as well so it was it all that sort of encompassed basically and so was, did you get the book deal or did you have the idea to write the book before COVID or was it COVID and the situation of COVID that made you think this this story now needs to be told or what was the order of the... I think the order of things was I always kept notes of things. I always thought anaesthetics was fascinating. I loved it. And I always thought that it was something to really talk to people about and people didn't really know much about. But when the pandemic hit, 
as with everyone, all comedy outlets, because com- comedy was always an outlet for me, you know, balancing the comedy and the medicine things. But when all the gigs shut down, when everything shut down, uh, writing then became an outlet. So I thought, right, I'm going to try and put this down on paper and just started going with it that way. So it came, it did get stimulated from the the lockdown and the pandemic and that really sort of yeah. focused the energy in towards it. Yeah, well, it does give it an, an, uh, an extra... I mean, you say near the beginning, you know, if you're listening to this uh, to get a history of the pandemic, you kind of think that's quite... That seems quite a pompous uh, assertion at the beginning. And then listen to it and go, oh, no, fair enough. <laughs> it is, it's because uh, actually the, you know, the obviously the experience of the, of the NHS staff and particularly uh, in anaesthetics uh, is sort of crucial to, to you know, the, the whole treatment, isn't it? And um, so it, but, but the first half of the book or the first even maybe a little bit more than the first half of the book is about your your training and you know and you're you know you're being a student being a quite you know, seemingly quite incompetent student or making lots of mistakes which are very funny so there's lots of laughs yeah. uh, but obviously there's some serious stuff and there's some uh, there's obviously an, an element of uh, people dying as well in this book yeah, absolutely I mean it's medicine so there's always going to yeah. be sort of light and dark <laughs> with that but yeah absolutely there's that whole fish out of water experience of becoming uh it, it, becoming a medical student coming into the medical world because essentially we are just other average people that have happened to just walk into that line of things but once you get into the title of medicine or doctor people seem to look at you as if you've got some sort of extra uh about you but actually you know behind <laughs> behind the eyes and stuff we're still you know very much uh, a human we don't know everything we still sure we, we use google you know it's not <laughs> a little bit more insightful but you know we're, we're still just human like that yeah well there's a there's a there's a funny bit when you you are presented with your i think your first dead body uh and you can't understand why this this shaven head man on the on the slab has no penis uh and think you're very clever to ask about it which is uh, an enjoyable part yes there's this so this is uh unfortunately uh, based on uh, truth. So we were essentially in, it was the f- first day of medical school and we yeah. were, they tried to get you used to things. So it's sort of, you know, it's quite a daunting experience. So they um, show you various labs and the hospital. And then obviously one of the big things is an anatomy lab. So not many people at this stage um, have seen a dead body uh, in real life uh, for want of a better term, but the yeah. uh, essentially to get us used to it, they laid out an entire full body for us to do that. And we were all in our sort of lab copes walking around like it's the worst game of Cluedo, um, just sort of all pointing uh, and nodding. But then myself and someone else noticed that this uh, bald elderly man had had the um, genitals removed and I couldn't work out why. Yeah. So we went and said to the head of the medical school, um, we just said, look, listen, I don't know if there's a sensitive reason, but why have the penis and testicles been removed? And it was one of those moments where you felt like uh, I am really actually quite mature because it seems like quite a silly question. But actually, you've got to ask questions to learn. And I will, you know, be looked on greatly for this. <laughs> and the, the the head of the medical school kind of took a double glance at the door and then back at us and then just suddenly said, well, um, that's a female. Uh <laughs> we just shaved the head. I don't know why you didn't think about that before you asked the question. And you could see the anxiety in his face that I'd already got into medical school at this point. 
<laughs> but you sort of forget that obviously doctors are pretty young when they start, and so you know there's a there's a there's a chance. And I can understand why you made that mistake, and you might well have seen naked bodies before, but it might that might be if I if that was me, that would be almost the first naked person I'd seen. Certainly, like properly laid out in front of me. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so you know it is it, it's you, you forget about that, and I think it's you know it's a, it's a very good. Um, indication of how you know you go through all the how, how much you have to go through to become a doctor so there's a there's a, there's all your uh, training and then and you're working in the gps and um again you know various funny and uh, and tragic stories from that uh but then also the decisions the choices you have to make throughout i mean i think like some people would would maybe not even realize that somebody the anesthetic uh, the, the anesthetist is a doctor you know i think you might a lot of people might think oh that's a guy who's you know, learn how to do this somewhere probably in a couple of weeks, and then and then that's all he does. But obviously, uh, anaesthetists are fully trained doctors as well. Yeah, I mean, you're not too far off actually. There is a point where you yeah. do start doing anaesthetics, and a, a little while after doing it, you are basically you know let off leash and then off you go, sort of thing. But in the yeah. in the UK, you are essentially you, you finish medical school and you are a doctor, but you're a trainee doctor where you do these three or four month rotations doing different things. And just as you've got the hang of something, you then move off to something else. And then you're suddenly um, faced with this decision making of you've got to choose like a final sort of career path at some point. And so there's over 90 different specialties. So you're never going to get to choose all of them. Um, This is compared to the USA where basically you finish medical school and you go into the specialty you choose, basically. But there's lots of other reasons people choose things over there because obviously you know, people are picking things based on, you know, how much they might get paid, for instance, and stuff yeah. like that. But um, yeah, I chose essentially anaesthetics, which is quite a high, st- I mean, medicine's high stakes, but it's probably one of the more high stakes things there is. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's a, if things go wrong, they go quite wrong. You have to act uh, quite quickly. But essentially, yeah, it's the first, you're basically then start training into doing some anaesthetics. And after you've done it for a couple of months, they basically say, right, that's it, you're good enough, you can go off and do some anaesthetics on your own and then suddenly you find yourself overnight just in the hospital sort of manning it and just uh, waiting for things to go off yeah well you know and it's an inc- it's an inc- incredible uh, having you know having had to use the nhs last year uh, and uh, and to use an anaesthetics it's an incredibly important job and you know and, and you're essentially you're sort of killing all of your patients and then bringing them, bringing hopefully most of them back to life again, which not not all of them, sadly, but hopefully most of them will come around again. Yeah, exactly. So we do think that generally would get you reported to the GMC or various <laughs> uh, medical or legal bodies uh, if you did, because we just disrupt the physiology on purpose. Yeah. And if you went to your GP and they stopped you breathing, they would be like, well, you know, that's not really looked upon quite well, you know, p- probably frowned upon. Whereas, yeah, we do that on purpose. So we might make blood pressure drop lower than you know most people we might uh will can stop people breathing alter the heart rate and things like that but that's that's actually par for the course that's what you need to do so you start off yeah. and you'll get other doctors that come in and see what's happening in anesthetics and they'll look at the monitors and they'll be like, oh my god I, you know if i saw that on the ward i'd be absolutely shitting myself essentially <laughs> but uh, but that's just what we're used to so anita's got this kind of very relaxed vibe and it's because you're sort of dealing with the extremes of physiology and also um, I mean, one of the coolest things about it is the drugs. I mean, no one can yeah. deny that. It's one of the the coolest things. We use all, a whole wide range of drugs, um, which we could talk about as well. But um, it's it's got this whole sort of magic. And there's no set formula. Like each anaesthetist you meet might have a different way of doing things, but each of them is right. So everyone's sort of like a, a chef with all these different sort of drugs 
yeah. and they'll pick and choose. And you'll, you know, you might work with one anesthetist one day and they'll tell you to do things one way and then you'll go to another and then they'll do things completely differently. So right. it keeps you on your toes. But um, yeah. I mean, I, it was my experience of having anaesthetic, general anaesthetic, and I was offered um, a spinal anaesthetic, which I just yeah. couldn't understand why, it, in my circumstance where I was having a body part removed, that was quite, that I didn't really want to see being removed. It didn't seem uh, much of a choice to me, so I, would, I definitely wanted to be out. But it was so lovely to be knocked out and then just come around again. So it, it really felt like that's what death is it really felt like i've died there's no soul because there was no there was you know the, the, there's there was nothing there it wasn't like my soul was going oh what's what are we doing for this next hour there was no dreams and then you just you know come back come around and again you're awake but it was a lovely it was actually i found it quite reassuring uh it felt like if that was the way you died that would be quite a nice way to die uh and if you didn't wake up you wouldn't know about it but as an if you can do that you're not tempted just to do that you know, just it's like traveling in time, isn't it? Are you not just tempted to take some of it home with you and do it? Oh, do, do it yourself. I think not tempted to kill people, is what. I was no, well, are you tempted to? Well, we'll get onto that later. Are you not tempted? You know, I would just if I knew how to do it. I suppose you need to be awake, right, to wake them up again, to wake yourself yeah. up. Well, if but, you remember, like Michael Jackson's obviously yeah. uh, the person who used one of the most um, commonly used anaesthetic agents, thing uh, something called propofol, uh, yeah. to, to keep unconscious. But he has a whole cocktail of other things. The problem is that when you stop breathing like he did, there's no one there to sort of take over that sort of stuff. So that's yeah. the issue. And that's what happens with all the drugs that we use in anaesthetics. It's all like in like America where there's, you know, where there was the opioid crisis and the whole fentanyl thing. That's the issue. It's such a potent drug. It stops you breathing to the point that you end up, uh, what is it, a respiratory arrest. So you, so that's the issue. You run the risk of that. Yeah. But funny enough, you say... It's worth it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's worth, there, is, there is a problem. <laughs> I mean, there, there is a problem because people, that, um, people in, you know, positions of anesthesia have been, you know, uh, sort of um, exposed to being able to uh, abuse drugs or, you know, uh, like you said, you know, there's a protocol for things being left over, but, you know, what if things go missing and things like that? It's not, it's totally yeah. not unheard of. I mean, even darker than that is um, there are stories of people using some anaesthetic drugs um, as murder weapons and then like yeah. trying to cover it up, especially things like the yeah. muscle relaxants, which is like, I find fascinating, the muscle relaxants. So, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that in the, in your book, but then you get caught if you're going to do it. It's good. You give, you, you make sure you don't get caught. If you're going to do that and then burn the house down, yeah. you'll get caught. Cause then there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be uh, there wouldn't be any carbon monoxide or something in their in their bloodstream that they would yes. be breathing in if you die. So if you're already if you're already relaxed and dead, you can't do that. So it's good. There's some good tips for murderers in there. I will, I will say um, one thing about the drugs, which I also find fascinating that people might not realise is that you know when you get a pack of paracetamol or something and you open up and you've got the instructions and everything in there and it tells you. Yeah. So for every single drug, including anaesthetic, there is a patient information leaflet, including <laughs> for the muscle relaxants. So muscle relaxants that they paralyse you. And it says stuff like, before you take this medicine, have a chat with your doctor. And it's like, why would you be taking it? Why would you be paralyzing yourself? And it's like, and then it's, it's like questions like, is it safe for children? It is safe for children. But have a chat with doctors before. Like... <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's, it's amazing stuff. I think that choosing the discipline thing is interesting. Again, I'm writing a book about, about um, my own experience on the, other, on the other end of all of this and going through COVID as well. So it was quite interesting to read. Your, your book from your point of view. But the you know, I was wondering when they sent me the dimensions of my tumour slash testicle that have been removed, uh, I kind of wondered whose job is that to 
to measure measure that and how do they measure it but also you know who decided is that a punishment that you say you've got to go and measure the cancerous balls or does someone go oh I'll, can i can that be my job I think uh, <laughs> I th- I, I, it might be something people volunteer for. I don't, I'm not quite right. sure, but there's definitely. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they would have had a large ruler uh, at the side available yeah, for that. I hope they. I hope they wiped it off afterwards. Yeah. Well, you know, but say, um, it, was, it was big. It was. Uh, did, did they? Did you get to keep it or did what? No, that? no. And well, I never. Uh, that sort of like throughout the. You know, I, I sort of wished I'd asked even, but I think you're not allowed. I, I don't think. I don't think you're unless it's a re- for religious reasons. I don't think you can have it back I, I, yeah g- generally is people don't i mean there obviously are some things that you can keep and people you know things like teeth and stuff that kids can yeah. have back um and you've seen you've seen stories of people having their gallstones or something like that so I i'm not quite sure i guess it depends how how um how enthusiastic the request process is there because i'm sure that once, <laughs> if you really really wanted your testicle back and yeah. you've written several letters saying this is my body i'm sure that the... I mean, I think you could argue definitely. I mean, I sort of want, but every point that I could ask about it, and you know, in a way, as a as a comedian who thought I might do stuff about this and I might experience, I should have had the the ball to ask for my ball. But um, you know, when the woman said the the jeep, the doctor who told me that I was going to have it taken off seemed more upset about it than I did, and so I, it didn't feel like I could go. Oh, I was, you know, I'm doing Taskmaster. I thought that might be quite a good price <laughs> for Taskmaster. Um, can I have it back? So I just, and I, so it, it was, you know, it was, it felt too serious a, a situation, weirdly, even though I found most of, most of it quite funny. It was obviously uh, slightly unsettling and upsetting in places, but, uh, but yeah, but I have to say again, you know, it was, it, it was interesting that um, reading your book in conjunction I guess I was sort of lucky that this all happened in in the early part of 2021 rather than in the in the early part of 2020 where I would have I'd have been left stewing for several months waiting it was I was amazed how quick and efficient and cheerful and wonderful the NHS were pretty yeah. much everyone was uh, ready with a with a joke or just you know not not taking things too seriously it was it was amazing we, and to think what you'd all been through yeah in that I mean, previous 12 months. And so. also that that sort of thing, you know, people have missed doing as well. I mean, one of the things for me when we get to the second part of the book is that obviously we were taken over to intensive care. So just a bit of background is that intensive care and anaesthetics used to be joined together. Um, but years ago they split up, and which was fine. But now intensive care actually still do need anaesthetists to come across. And when the pandemic hit, we had to go. So all the sort of anaesthetics disappeared. So doing operations like that, yours, would just wasn't yeah. even on the cards so uh you know to go back to doing anesthetics it was a complete mind uh you know complete relief for the mind I didn't quite realize but uh you, you know how you realize some things in hindsight that actually you are quite down and quite depressed and like you yeah. uh, actually don't enjoy what you're doing you know spending these 13 hour days in intensive care I lost that identity of doing anesthetics and so going back you know, I, I totally see where you say everyone was, everyone was really happy. Yeah. It's just like, oh my <laughs> goodness, this is what we wanted to be doing. We want to be, you know, putting people to sleep and being able to wake them up and send them home and let them have their stuff done. So yeah, yeah it's, I think it's, it was much of, much of a relief for the patients as, as like I said, for people like you going and having it done. Yeah. And it is great to hear, you know, like I think um, I sort of had a little scare this year and um, had to go and have another scan. And luckily it turned out to everything was fine. But having experienced the other, having experienced both of those, where it's not fine, where I thought it was going to be fine and it wasn't, then I thought it might not be fine and it was fine. Uh, you know, it's the the guy doing the scan was going, oh yeah, and it's great to be able to tell people that 
um, you know, there's nothing wrong or this is just a system, there's nothing to worry about, whatever. It's you, you sort of, it's good to see the, the human side of the medical stuff. Not that you're not seen as really human, but you're seen as professionals. But it must be nice, as, as horrible as it is and uh, and as, as draining as it is to have experienced all the, the, the unpleasant and the, and the tragic sort of stories, uh, it's lovely to see you sort of writing about the things that work and and when you get it right and how happy you know how personally happy you are for the for the person who's okay. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and it, that's it. You just, I mean, that's totally what we missed over the last couple of years, and that's what we worry about is that you know if we end up in this constant cycle of like you know if there's another variant or something like that, and then it takes over, you know, you just suddenly dilute all that uh, being able to do it. You know, go and do the job you really want to do. Um, and so, like in terms of getting the book uh, mm. published, um, did you did you take the sort of idea to a publisher, or was a was a publisher sort of obviously, as I said in one of my Rahelistopers, you know, there's the Adam K, the success of the Adam K book uh, must a be very exciting for you to think, well, this book could my book do the same? Which I, you know, I think it, I hope it can because it's a different it's a different take on it, and it's um, but it's equally you know important in terms of understanding how the NHS works and what amazing work they did. But um, did they come to you? Did you, did you, did you pitch it to lots of publishers or, or was it, what was the process of getting it actually published? Like It was surprisingly um, once the, the rate determining step was me getting um, a proposal together, basically as it right. was. So I had, I knew what I was going to uh, do. Um, and I, I got it together um, and yes, it, like I was thinking, obviously, you know, it's like with medicine and like, different uh genres of anything you there's always different stories to tell so like you said with adams he's got you know very obstetric you know in medicine there's lots of different stories just like there's lots of different crime stories so i thought anesthetics was actually one of those things to really tell people about as well so that was the basis of it and then obviously the pandemic came as well so i i sort of got this proposal together which was going to tie them them both in like i had like the book does and i sent it to an agent uh i sent i think i sent it to a couple of agents and then one came back immediately like when i say immediately within like 10 minutes (laughs) (laughs) and then and then came back two hours later after they'd read it and they were just like right this is great um should we talk on monday uh so uh so then obviously with the agent and then it was two weeks later it had been taken up as a as a preempt which had um so, so for me, it was, it, it, I mean, it's a brand new process for me, like the whole uh, book thing, you know, going through it and this whole uh, procession. So I was sort of oblivious on this little boat riding past going, all right, is this, is this normal? Is this what normally happens? This is, <laughs> and so I obviously realized how lucky and how smooth that process was. But I think the key thing was just actually doing it and braving it. You know, it took a long time to hit that send button on the email. You know, when you, right. you've, got it, you've got it loaded up, it's all attached. You're like, oh, because... You do feel like sometimes when you're doing this, uh, you've got sort of a one shot with people because you don't, if you get into too much of a discussion, I think, you know, you yeah. sort of lost that pizzazz about it. So you kind of want to, to present uh, what you've got for you. So that, luckily, I'd had some conversations beforehand about our books before pandemic. Um, yeah. So I kind of had an idea building up to that of what um, a proposal would look like. And so once I got that ready, that was, that was basically getting sent off. Yeah, and it's sort of, I guess, there's a there's an element of uh, timing and, you know, if it's often publishers are looking for a specific type of thing or are not looking, the, the danger is when you're sending in a book and then um, 
I think this just happened to my wife who had an idea for maybe a book or a TV show. If if you send it to someone, they've already got something even a little bit similar or whatever. Even if yours is great, that can that can be the problem. But if you send it, that, that's well, that's a pretty incredible. Um, bit of uh, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone getting a book published in tennis although maybe there was a, when, I, when I did my original emergency questions book it was a bit like that that I went in for a meeting and the guy said yeah we'd love you know, the podcast we'd, you know we'll do it you know which I'd, ne- I'd never experienced in a in a meeting usually there's a bit of you know well yes we'll think about it and I have to talk about basically it. it was pretty much walking out of that meeting but then I went to another meeting arguably sort of a more important one and that was just like the worst meeting I'd ever had which was for a t- oh. <laughs> TV company so I had this thing like oh, I'm on a roll this could be it this could be I'll get a book and I get a TV deal and then the TV the TV meeting was the absolute worst TV meeting I've ever had so you know it's 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 interesting I mean I think just like because it's so hard to be a writer right and it's yeah. I mean that's I mean so you just have to keep persisting and you might get a bit of luck early on or you might get a bit of luck a few years down the line how did you Given that it is so hard writing a book, and given that you are a a, a working doctor, um, this, um, how did you um, get the time to? When, how did you write? Actually, physically write? Yeah, well, write the book? That's, a, that's a good question. I mean, I'm just thinking back to the whole process because it was such a blur. But it, like I said, it was it was it was a, several. It was must have been over the course of a couple of months that whole process, and then we started writing, and then the the deadline was pretty. They wanted to get it out in twenty twenty one as a hardback, yeah. but then the payback obviously coming out um, this year. Um, and I think I, I just tried to. I found out that in the mornings, I'm so I'm not a morning person at all. I can't tell you how much of not a morning person. But once I'm up, I'm more productive than anything. I, I could do more in two hours in the morning than yeah. I would do in six hours for the rest of the day. But I'm hardly awake, and I don't know why. But I suddenly managed to uh, focus that energy into getting up uh, to be able to do that. And then occasionally I just get into a stream of consciousness for that, for those sort of moments. And then I just tried to balance it around the shifts as well. So yeah. I, I had like, <laughs> I was, I remember like drawing up uh, a spreadsheet on, uh, on Excel, obviously just to, it's a, you know, here's a deadline, here's what I've got to do. And then my, my fiance looked at it and said, so th- this is you're expecting to write all this in this period of time. This is not going to happen. You need to you need to do this. You need to do this. <laughs> so there was yeah. there were I was kept saying by you know someone else from the outside looking in saying you know when you, tr- you say, yeah yeah like I can write an Edinburgh show in uh, the next two days you know and get it all sort of it was a bit like that at the start yeah yeah and then um, uh, just managed to gradually focus and just keep plugging away and I think again it's uh, about writing it's it's about just getting it done and then worrying about it afterwards I think that there was so much uh, anxiety about putting something out there or sending something off and like there was with the proposal and sometimes you reach chapters where you're just not quite sure how you want it to go or do and in the end it was just getting something down on paper which you can then change or delete or do anything later but then it's there you know it's get, get you can get it done and then change it afterwards was the main thing yeah, I think that's very much that's very true, and it is really difficult. I think the more you write, the harder it becomes to just write. But it's absolutely the, <laughs> the key to it to just write nonsense, just write rubbish, and and then come back to or just try and get a little bit down of, of what you're trying to do. And I think it's interesting that having constricted time can just focus. Yeah, the might you know. I mean, nearly always when I write something, I do a lot in the last week. You know, so I do a big, I probably do a quarter of the work in in the final week but you know you've been thinking about it all the time but I think but I found this time as well um 
that, uh, you know, I was just picking up two hours here and there, just like you. I wasn't saving people's lives in the interim, though, unfortunately. Uh, and um, although I stopped a bloke getting run over by a bike yesterday. Oh, so, there you, you go. Know, I'm, you know, I'm... I'm I'm sort of a hero as well, uh, but um, but yeah, it's it's you know it is focusing, and I suppose wanting to do it. I think it's interesting you say that you've been keeping notes the whole time because again, with my book, I, I do a, I do a daily blog, which I would advise any writer to do, just in terms of of you don't have to put it on the internet. It's just a diary, just in terms of getting used to writing, but also as as an aid memoir. Uh, and you know, I never knew there'd be a book in last year, and certainly when I started the year, the stuff I was writing, I didn't think this will be in a book. But I would have absolutely forgotten everything that happened, or yeah. certainly the stuff around that maybe not the main drive of you know what it was like to, for those things to happen to me, but all these little instances that with the same with your book, and it's it's clear you've done the same because you've got these little colourful stories that sometimes about your personal life, sometimes about about the job. So you were keep you were keep you sort of keeping a diary. Yeah, throughout, which must have been very useful. Yes, but the key thing was it wasn't always like lots of paragraphs of diary or anything like that. Sometimes no. it was just sort of a couple of words, and that's yeah. all you needed just to jog the memory, just to say that yeah, something had right. happened. And I think that was yeah. the key thing. It you were able just because you do think that something so stark happens in your day to day life, and you're like, I'll remember this, I won't forget it, and then you do do forget it again. It's just in like in comedy when you have that moment if you don't write something down you'll just forget it's like, oh, what was that thing yeah it's amazing yeah, it how is. life can just pass you by then in that sense but yeah write everything down definitely i mean Do i think you- it's just good to you know get the practice of writing as well i think i think i have all the things i've done just in terms of creating stand-up material as well which it was never the intention of the blog the blog was just the, the blog was just a way of warming up for writing which is why it's called warming up but it never really was that but i think in, out of all the things i've done that was probably the most useful thing and you know sometimes what you're doing is not going to be no use or not interesting or you'll never use again but you only need you know one thing every month or so to hit or to to give you an idea of something so that's very interesting and did you enjoy did you find it easy to write it did you enjoy writing it or was it a struggle to write it I I did enjoy writing it and definitely looking back it's one of those things where you've got to try and enjoy the journey because sometimes it's not enjoyable when you're stuck in those ruts Um, but it's there were points where you know you could see the you know, starts and ends and then there was middle bits you needed to work on you know there's lots of drafts of things you do and actually when I think about it there's lots of things I wrote that probably didn't make it into the book uh, or didn't make it into the book um, then there's other bits that you put to the side and um, other ideas you have uh, so everything can come into play so for instance the bonus chapter which is on the audio book yeah, was something that got yeah. like got amalgam you know brought together from other things that have been written about on the sites as well I think having, I mean, I'm interested in what your thoughts on this as well, is that I am deadline driven for these sort yeah. of things. Um, but authors are, you know, well known to have to pass their deadlines and get extensions and things like that. Um, yeah, well, I sort of feel like, I think with comedy shows, that uh, that's how it works, because there is a deadline, because yeah. there's the first, before, or there's a performance, you know, even just like a preview, you can't just go on and go, I haven't got anything. You have to, have, <laughs> you know, you have to at least have something you can dick around with in the preview. So I think in terms of writing comedy shows, I'm absolutely driven by deadlines. But I, because I know, and even my editor, you know, because I was writing something else and it was, you know, I'm, and she also having worked with me, she knows that I can come up with it and she knows my first draft is pretty good. You know, like the last, the last book, The Problem With Men, which was the book I did a couple of years ago, which was a short book, but basically for the first time in my life, um, 
the editor came back and said, yeah, that's good. Then <laughs> 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 we'll put that out. There's like, well, you know, there's a couple of typos and uh, style things we have to change, but you've, you've got it. Because I because it was a short book and I worked very hard on, you know, I had to be very concise with everything. So I think she knows that I can, that I'll, that it will be done. So I was six weeks late on my original uh, deadline, yeah. but she was very cool about it until this last week, because I've just literally finished the first draft, so it's not uh, it's not over yet. But like about a week ago, she said, um, yeah, we will be needing something <laughs> soon, because even though I'd said it'd be a couple more months. And so, you know, so then when I had that, I thought, yeah, great, well, I'll, that, that's a good incentive to get it done. So I, I'm really, I am really deadline-driven, but that sort of slightly, uh, you know, fluid deadline that, that I think editors put a deadline in knowing their writers are going yes. to be um, six weeks late so, so that was it with, with, um, with the proposal I did I definitely set myself a deadline probably the first ever deadline I've managed to set myself in terms of be worried to make this deadline in a self-imposed deadline but yeah. um yeah after that I certainly felt the editor's deadline but I've it made me wonder because I didn't have uh you know sort of two years to write and you know how some Authors obviously will get a deal to, you know, a book that will be released in 2024, 25. I'm interested to know, like, how it how that dynamic works. Because, you know, if you've got two or three years, you know, if if you're a crammer, which I can't deny being, they, <laughs> like, like, you know, do you get to the final sort of two months and then suddenly you're in a cabin in Canada or something? Just, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would much, but, but, you know, I did. I suppose I have written the book in, aside from having written the blogs, I suppose I started in. I suppose I didn't really start it till November or December, uh, so I've written it in four months. You know, so I think you know you can. I think it's it's. I think two years to write a book is unless yeah. you're writing, you know, a novel that that's is that thick yeah. and has lots of research and stuff. Um, you know, I think to write a, a memoir, and I've done a bit, a bit, a bit of research and stuff because I've, I've kind of gone around the subject a bit, so it's not just my story. But uh, if you're writing a memoir, I don't think it should really take you all that long because <laughs> yeah. you know, because if you've worked out once you've worked out what it's going to be, there, you know, unless you're just going to make stuff up, which is interesting in your book because obviously you've had to change details and names. And at the beginning, it says no, uh, any any similarity <laughs> to anyone living or dead is coincidental, which it surely can't be entire. I know you've got to say that, but uh, but however, you've you've got to change it, but it's obviously got to be truthful as well. Yeah, I've already had a uh, anaesthetic consultant contact me saying, "Ed, I read your book, really enjoyed it. Can I just ask, am I this doctor?" Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, "I can't possibly comment on uh, <laughs> the reality." Well, there's of one this. guy you don't like working with. He must be able to work out who he is because it's not. <laughs> But it's obviously an amalgamation uh, yeah. of experiences. But uh, yeah, I think you're right. Once you knew, I knew where the book was going, where it was, uh, where it was going to land, where it was going to end. And also, I think as much as the deadline as well, it really was the only thing you could do creatively. I mean, obviously, there's all the online uh, gigs and things like that. But in terms yeah. of like creative outlet, that was really it. So that was coming home and then sort of decompressing by writing. Uh, by getting yeah. it all out essentially and um and the second half of the book definitely felt it um and even when i go back and read bits now i i've almost forgotten about that it's not that i've forgotten but i'm like oh yes i do remember actually that moment or that you know uh how intense it was or you know how soul destroying or how um just how or how difficult but also the moments of sort of like you know the dark humor moments as well that we all had together yeah. as well so so it's yeah, it's um, it was definitely a release, I think, as well. 
I mean, it sort of it sort of surprised me how how little of the book was the pandemic, but I suppose the experience was just this amorphous, like a never-ending thing of basically the same thing happening over and over again. There, what there can't have been much. There can't be the same amount of time to get to know people because they were yeah. basically everyone you were seeing was already, uh, you know, not either passed out or not able to talk. And uh, but it, you do get that, you know, because it's still you're still talking about it. 12 months or so maybe a bit longer aren't you of, of of the pandemic that you were working with you know times when it was suddenly getting a bit better than getting worse again um but you know you really i think you don't need any more because it it uh you you get the idea <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah i mean but, it's, it's, it's 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 an interesting thing you touched on there is that you know as in an anesthetist or just generally you're used to seeing patients getting to know them building that um relationship like you when you had your operation you know you met your anesthetist knew what they're going to do yeah. you felt comfortable put them off sleep wake them up and those moments of interaction became shorter and smaller and smaller um and you could give no guarantees as well which was also really difficult so you know one of the devastating things about the disease when it was um you know in in you know pre-vaccine and when we didn't have any uh, uh, you know when people were really unwell with it is that you could have what we would say is really low oxygen, um, but still function. Uh, so normally, if someone has such a low oxygen reading on the, the saturations, they might be confused or they might you know, not be fully with it and you can just go, but people would be fully lucid and then ask you, is this the right thing? You know, are we doing the right thing here? Do you, and yeah. you don't, yeah. and you, you basically don't have much time. You have to say essentially, well, this is the last thing we can do. And, you know, I can't guarantee what will happen, which was an absolutely insane position to be in having been someone who's so used to doing things and seeing immediate results. So someone's got low oxygen, I'll give them hundred percent oxygen. The the levels come up, you know, low blood pressure, give them from fluids and things like that. Um, Everything we did took so long to have any sort of increase on their, um, uh, uh, on their sort of state Whereas any drops off the cliff were really sharp as well. So, yeah. it, so everything, so you lost all the rapport with the people. Um, and then also you lost, you felt like you lost your ability to really sort of make any sort of impactful thing. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very devastating in, in that sense too. And then, as you said, we just kind of this relief of everything coming off and then back in it again and then off again. And then we're like, vaccine's great. Everyone's going to love the vaccines. Who's not going to like a vaccine? <laughs> Everyone will love them. I did um, an interview for um, Sky News uh, about uh, the vaccines and they were, I just got asked what was, um, you know, what would you say to people who were still sort of hesitant about it? And I, I just explained that, you know, when you don't, uh, when you come into a hospital with COVID and if you need to come into intensive care, um, we you have to give you a whole cocktail of drugs that have all these side effects, um, yeah. none of which we can guarantee or won't guarantee. And this is just to keep you alive. So, you know, having a vaccine is obviously a good idea. Now, I didn't think a doctor thinking vaccines were a good idea was a particularly hot take. I, th- <laughs> I, I, don't, I kind of thought that was just par for the course. Yeah. But after that, it, it, there was a clip that went out and it just went viral. And then next thing I know, I'm getting, um, you know, uh, Instagram messages or getting Twitter feeds. Getting, people are emailing me. To say, yeah. <laughs> like, to say that it's all, uh, you know, it's all rubbish. People comparing me to, uh, like, call, someone called me a Nazi. You know, right. like, and it was just sort of you're like, oh, my class God. Barbie. Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> you've, got, you've, gone, you've gone through all of this and you just think, this has been, like, one of the best things ever in terms of stopping people coming to hospital. How could yeah. we possibly have gone back into... 
Well, the yeah. world's gone. The world has gone mad, which we've been discussing quite a few of the podcasts. How, uh, it has. How crazy the world is. But uh, yeah, that's. Uh, and, and as a, you know, you've been working as a doctor and uh, in medicine and uh, as a comedian for a good long time. I did a show with you, didn't I? Yeah. A few, few years ago, when you did your. Um, uh, was it a podcast or was it just a live? It was just a live show, was it? The, it uh... That was the very, very first uh, incarnation of the Comedian Surgery podcast, which right. I run, which yeah. is available, where we um, interview where I interview people about their health stories and experiences. Yeah, um, and yeah, it was it was yourself and uh, Ivo Graham and me, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, of course it was. Yeah, yeah, but you know, this it seems to be two mostly doctors who become comedians stop being doctors. Or yeah. or become sort of funny doctors, but they're still work. You know, it must be very hard to to manage both of those very demanding careers. It it is in a couple of ways. One is just logistics, because you know if you're doing gigs and things like that, you've got to try and preempt rotors along with gigs and stuff like that, yeah. and you've got to um, you're you're forever at the mercy in the NHS of whoever is coordinating your rotor and things like that. So it's always one person you've got, to, and it's a real gamble as to who that is and how sympathetic they'll be. Um, I think that if it was, you know, 30 years ago, it would be more impossible to do this kind of thing now be, uh, that I'm doing now, because medicine very much was, all your life should be focused on medicine. Nothing should be coming in the way of it and stuff like that. And it, I definitely felt the felt that when I was in medical school as well. Um, so yeah. I never talked about doing comedy um, when I was doing medicine. So I did like first couple of years, um, a, a doctor, and I would never tell people what I was doing in the evening. So like, <laughs> I remember I was doing a placement and then my the consultant said, oh, where are you off to you this evening? I was like, oh, I'm just not not doing it, nothing really. And I was, I, was doing a, I was doing some corporate show in London with uh, Jimmy Carr sort of thing. And it was like very exciting. I was so excited, but I didn't want to, I couldn't tell yeah. anyone about it. And then uh, I ended up chatting to another, um, someone else who spotted that I'd had this on a CV and basically <laughs> said, why don't you do, why don't you talk about this more? You know, why don't you do more about, uh, about this? And then that's when it really started getting more confident in terms of, yeah, let's do both of these. So then I realised that the NHS yeah. has softened that. And there's a couple of reasons. One is because they realise that people have got to have lives outside of medicine. And two is because they're just going to lose people otherwise. So sure. so they have you have to have this uh, decompression or something else you do. A lot of anaesthetists are cyclists, and that's not really what floats my boat. But uh, yeah, my for me, it was always comedy and medicine has always been the two things uh, that have just balanced off each other. Yeah, it's it's tricky. Do you get a lot of... Harry Hill always used to say, and I know instances not personally of like comedians sort of just getting their cocks out and saying what's wrong with that did you, did you get a, did you get a lot of that as a result of hanging around with comedians yeah. and knowing about medicine you do yeah, yeah. No, I can't remember who it was but someone you, you get asked just really basic questions yeah and uh, I can't remember who it was but someone asked me about um just that they hadn't been they hadn't um opened their bowels for a few days and what did I recommend <laughs> and I was like have you had a coffee and they were like no I don't drink coffee and they came to the, it was a weekend gig somewhere and so they came the next night and they were like, I haven't stopped going since I had like two lattes. Like, you know, so you get all those. And obviously you get all the skin stuff as well. But as an anaesthetist, it's quite good. You don't have to worry about that uh, anymore. Yeah. But um, yeah, you do, you do get people asking you little little tidbits. Here. Why not? I mean, it's difficult getting an appointment these days. So you might as well just take, take the most <laughs> of it. You know? And yeah, the audio book uh, as well, we briefly mentioned, did you? It's, it's nice. I always love it when the, the author does the audio book, which seems to be happening most of the time now, not always, but obviously as a comedian, that was that was never going to be not, an issue. Is that not 
uh, common then well, in the past? Or? I mean, I think for comedians it's usual, but like for you know, Richard Osman's books are read by uh, that fantastic actress whose name's uh, is it? Oh, I've forgotten her name, but she's fantastic. I want to say Leslie Manville, but I think that's wrong. Um, but yeah, so sometimes people don't read their own books, which I think Osman could do. I think he's yeah. just so, too busy to do it. Is this his Thursday Murder Club that's read? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. So I've just been reading that, and I've been reading it yeah. in his voice that I hear yeah. on. Well, she's very, she's very good. I wonder if I can quickly find out what, what her name is, but she's she's very good. Uh, probably better than Osman would be because actually, I suppose because it's, um, you know, because it's characters and stuff in it that uh, uh, she. Uh, let me see if I can find it on here. Uh, and I've messed everything. Chapter 14. Oh, look, I've started your book. <laughs> it's you, you've started off. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I didn't realise how difficult it was to say the word anaesthetist until yeah, I had to say it about gonna, 140 gonna, times. <laughs> There's a few times I think, does he know how to say his own job, this guy? And I'm not there sure a, that's the, how he the guy, it. The guy who was doing the recording was just... He was he was very nice about it. And what happened was I'd say something and thought I'd get away with it. And I'd be like four words later and he'd be like, let's just take that again, Ed, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard word to say, as I've found. I'm going to say, this will tell us. So come on, get on with it. Get on with the it. The Man Who Died Twice by Richard Osman. Read by Leslie Manville. Oh, I was wrong. Ah. Read, read by Leslie Manville. Uh, so she's very good. But did you enjoy? Did you enjoy the process of uh, of doing the audio book? It's quite a long. Pro- Yours isn't too long a book, actually, is it? No. How long? How long did it take? Is it two days? Uh, to, to write or, or to to read it? <laughs> it was a yeah. So it's it to reading. No, I think it took three or four days actually. Did it? Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. It was, but it was great fun doing it. There was uh, the the script you have is slightly different to the one you get in the book. And so when I was reading it, there was a couple of times when I saw what I thought was mistakes and then there would be a panic and I'd be like, oh my goodness. And then realised it didn't actually correlate what was in the uh, final version of the script book. It was just written because, you know, sometimes it's uh, it's just when you're reading something, it's better to sort of change it slightly. That was what right. the, the editors yeah. had done. But I thought the whole process was great and also just gave you chance to really sort of go over it and enjoy it really isn't it because you've, you've yeah, spent it's, so much it's, it's, it's a celebration almost in a way well you sort of don't do you know and that's what I find about doing your final draft it's very hard to actually fully concentrate and not just you know, oh, I've read this page a thousand times I've just skipped through this page you know it's actually quite hard to force yourself I've asked my editor if I can do the audiobook like quite early on as soon as we've got it finished I want to do the audiobook so that I can then go, look, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Because you, you always spot mistakes or just sloppy writing in the, you know, that you wish you wish could change. And it's very rare that, because they usually do it right at the end. It's very yeah. rare you've got time to go, can we change this in the book? And they go, we can change it. I think we managed to do it for both of mine, actually, just about. But I mean, I'm going to try and do it early next time. That, that's, ex- that's exactly what I was talking about, where I was like, I had no idea what goes on. So... I was picking up stuff. I was panicking in like last few weeks and picking up and we'd missed an and somewhere we'd missed. And then yeah. ended up getting an email just saying, you know, we send this off to a proofreader before we, and I was like, what's, what's a proofreader? I have no idea what that is. And it's like, they look for stuff like this. And I was like, all oh, right, okay, that's fine then. But there's always stuff, they, there's always stuff that gets missed. Whenever you open your book the first time, you'll find a mistake. But also it's more, it's even more, it's just like, oh, I've used that same word in two sentences yep. in a row and no one's, no one's picked that up and proofreaders often don't because they're not looking for that or there's just sloppy writing or just, you know, I can I can write that sentence a bit better. And that's the, you know, with a book, you're never going to quite perfect it. You you could always keep going back over, you know, I've probably yeah. gone over the first half of my book, yeah, 12 or 13 times. And every time I'll just tinker with something, you, you would never 
you would never just get to the point where you're going, I'm absolutely happy with this. But the great thing about a book, unlike a comedy show, is that you sort of do get to the point where it's over. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what I was going to say was, with a, with a com- compared with a comedy show as well, is that I didn't realise what a lovely sort of long process it is in a way. So that the book comes out and, you know, whereas your show's done, your show's done. Whereas with a book, obviously, it takes people time to read. And so there's this you know, sort of almost uh, influx over time of people telling you they've just read the book. Yeah. So it's lovely to see that enthusiasm. And then also you've got, uh, like you said, you've got the audio book. You know, if it's a hardback like this, we've got um, the paperback coming out. And then there's another big celebration of it there. And, you know, yeah. this is a time after a time when it was handed in, you know, last year sometimes. So to be able to really celebrate something like that actually feels really special in that way yeah. as well. And it is nice, you know, it is nice to have something. And, you know, I think this is, it genuinely is the the, the kind of book that someone's going to pick up in 50 years time to get a a view of what was, you know, because it's it's not, a, I'm sure there'll be lots of people writing about this from all sides, but it will be, it is an historic event and it will be something that, that people, well, hopefully it will be, hopefully it won't become just our, our regular, <laughs> the regular, oh, here comes another one. Hopefully like in 50 years time, and if we're here in 50 years time, um, that hopefully it'll be, it'll be like the Spanish flu. Oh, let's find out what happened there. So it's a, you know it is a resource, and so that's the nice thing about books that they're that they're there for for a while, um, and maybe for 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 after you've gone. So it's uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, look, I'll, I'm going to let you go, but uh, the book is Catch Your Breath. It's out in hardback at the moment. It'll be out in what? It's coming out in May in paperback. It's is it? coming out April the twenty eighth. Uh, well, perfect. That's that's very that's very very soon. It is very very soon. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so go maybe wait for the paperback. Do you want them to wait for the paperback? Or do I will get, get yeah. Go go for the get, pre-order the paperback. You can pre-order it. Pre-order the paperback. What a good idea. It's it's very good. It's not. It's it's a nice read. It's you could probably read it in. Uh, you know, I've had a couple of sittings. Yeah, I've had people tell me that they've read it in two days, or they've read it. Yeah. you know, start it in the morning and manage it in the evening, which is unbelievable. Like, you know, when I when I was down with COVID, I just you know I, I, I read it for a, for a day and got halfway through. So I think that's exactly right. Uh, and uh, it bore a second viewing as well. So there there we go. It was, it was good to come back to it. So uh, catch your breath by Ed Patrick. Thank you, Ed, for uh, chatting with us about it. Thank you for having me. Uh, that's my pleasure. I'd also like to thank Chris Evans, not that one, who has uh, set everything up. He's a very nice man. Uh, we'll be back next week with more. I think we're doing another one next week, uh, but we'll be back soon with another uh, Rahalastava book. Uh-huh.